1: Welcome to the Flower Path. In just a bit, I'll be talking to Dr. Gilbert Lavoy about the Shroud of Turin and his book *The Shroud of Jesus and the Sign John Ingeniously Concealed* from Sophia Institute Press. It's a fascinating book, really, really well done. I very much enjoyed it. I enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Lavoy, and I look forward to sharing it with you all. Before we get to that, though, I want to thank my new patron, Anthony Sullivan. Thank you so much. Patrons and donations help me to continue to make The Flowered Path and bring you more content. All patrons get the regular episodes of The Flowered Path ad-free, often before they drop on the regular podcast feed. Rose and Orchid-tier patrons also get shout-outs on the show and occasional bonus content, including full extra episodes. Orchid-tier patrons get monthly merch mailings as well. To check out all of the patron options and benefits, and to help me to continue to make The Flowered Path, go to patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. You can also find a PayPal link if you want to make a one-time donation. Just click the support button at thefloweredpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says Donate. I'd like to welcome Dr. Gilbert Lavoie to The Flower Path. How are you doing today?
2: Very good, Tim. It's really very nice of you to invite me. I'm very happy to be here with you.
1: Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about your book, The Shroud of Jesus and the Sign John Ingeniously Concealed. It's published by Sophia Institute Press, and it covers the Shroud of Turin. But before we get into it, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, I'm a, I'm a physician and um, internist. Also, I'm boarded in occupational medicine, and I've done a lot of public health. I um, have been in practice in medicine for many years. I also was involved in different public health programs during my life, and I became interested in the Shroud back when I was just starting in practice. I actually got involved the first time when I uh, read a book by Dr. Pierre Barbet. I was actually in pre med and I walked down into Boston and I saw this book, A Doctor Calvary, by Dr. Barbet, who's a French surgeon. I thought it was something, a physician's perspective of Jesus's crucifixion and so forth, but as I read the book, I learned about for the first time The Shroud of Turin. And I was fascinated by it. It was a good read. Then I just sort of laid it aside and it was about. 17, 18 years later, when I was in the actually uh, <clears throat> in the beginning of my practice in Boston, opened the Boston Globe, and there on the front page was the photograph of the Shroud of Turin. So I remembered the book that I had read, and finally, so I decided, well, maybe I'll like to go see that. It was going to be shown for the first time since 1933. It was 1978 at the time, and so my wife and I went to Turin. And there I met with Father Peter Rinaldi, who is really the liaison between the American scientists who were there that year to study the Shroud. There's about 30 uh, members of this this STIRP team studying the Shroud of Turin. They brought a lot of equipment over. He introduced me to these men, and some of them have become long-life friends. A lot of us have died. A lot of them have died, I should say, along the way, but there's a few of us left. So I got to know a number of these people, and I became more and more interested in the Shroud. But I have to tell you that at the very beginning, I was rather skeptic, because I had my faith. I didn't need this for my faith, and so I was very, very skeptical until one day I came across a blood mark that was an off-image blood mark, and that blood mark, after studying it for a couple of years, I came to realize indeed there was a crucified man three-dimensional crucified man that been in this cloth, and that started me going.
1: This book, A Doctor at Calvary by uh, Dr. Pierre Barbet, that was pretty early, right? That was written in the early 1900s?
2: He did his work in the 30s and 40s. Oh, 30s and 40s, okay. He wrote a book, wrote a book of 1930s and 40s and wrote a book published probably 1950 or 52 or something like that. Okay, all right. And so I picked it up while I was... Uh, yeah, well, in the early 60s, I picked
1: that up. I believe you mentioned he was the guy that was doing crucifixion experiments using cadavers, right?
2: Yes, that's exactly
3: right.
1: I spoke about this on an earlier show, but I just find it very interesting because it, it sort of says something about both the Shroud and the way people tend to approach this stuff. When I was in college, I, was, I went to art class, uh, art school rather, and... Um, one of my art professors told me, was talking about, you know, these crucifixions and paintings and stuff, and he says, oh yeah, you know, from medieval times up until a certain point, they they always show people being crucified through the hands, and then someone did experiments on cadavers, and they realized that it had to be crucified through the wrist to actually hold the weight of the body. What he never mentioned was that this person doing these experiments was doing it because of what he saw in the shroud.
2: Yeah, that's what motivated that, absolutely. Yeah, I found that very, very interesting, very
1: interesting. So I know your book isn't really specifically a history of the shroud, but can you relate just a brief history of the relic?
2: Well, I think just for your listeners, I I believe it's very important for them to understand that the Shroud of Turin is a cloth that's about 14 feet long, three and a half feet wide, and on this cloth is a very faint image of the back and front of a naked man, and on we see also blood marks that are consistent with what we read about in the Gospel of John regarding the scourging, crowning of thorns, uh, crucifixion, and spearing of, of Jesus. That's the intriguing part about John, is that everything you read about in John is found on the Shroud, and everything in the Shroud is found in the Gospel of John. Also on that clock are a parallel stripes of uh, patches and, and long uh, brown spots that occurred during the fire in 1532, but that's not of interest to us. It's mainly the the image itself and the in the blood marks. Basically, it's that of a a man who's been taken down from a crucified position, laid on one end of this cloth, and the other end was laid and wrapped sufficiently over him so that we see the blood marks that are there. So, historically, from the point of view of where this cloth has been. We have a very good history line from the 1350s to the present. Before that, it's a little shoddy. We do have certain areas of time when we do find this in Constantinople, and then possibly that was in the maybe 10th to 12th century, probably in Odessa, which is a town called Urfa in Turkey, probably the 5th century. And then we have stories, uh, a particular story of King Abgar, who, uh, it it was brought to him from Jerusalem. And he had it, and he then, uh, it got buried into a wall of Edessa, and then it was found probably the 5th century after a flood. They found it in the wall over the gate. That's sort of a history. But the main thing about the history is, even though that's shoddy, we have other data that's very, very important we have pollen data. I met Dr. Max Fry, who did this work in Turin in 1978, personally. And this information is in my book. Most of it is in the back notes. But Dr. Fry spent five, when I talked to him, he told me personally, he spent five years traveling around. After finding these spore shells on the shroud, he, he had to match them up with other countries or where they were found. And he found them personally. France and Italy, but also down toward Constantinople, and into uh, Asia Minor, all the way into Palestine, and, you know, the Jerusalem area. So we have a an itinerary on that cloth that tells us geographically where it's been. And then I met with a, I was very fortunate in 2010, I spent some time, in fact, a, a, a day with the textile expert, who did the repair of the shroud in 2002, Fleury Lemberg, and she was a, a very uh, fine expert in ancient textiles. And she, um, if you look at the cloth, there's a strip, it's a three-four inch strip uh, that goes along the entire cloth, and she noted that it was sewed on, and she noted that the the, uh, the actual sewing was rather unique. We know that both pieces of the, the main cloth and the, the piece that actually was sewed on uh, were of the same era and the same time that it was used as a barrel cloth because they're definitely the same material, herringbone weave material of flax linen. And so, but what was unique about this stitch is that it has only been found in one place in the world and that is in Masada. And Masada is only a Uh, two- to three-day walk from Jerusalem, Mm. Uh, and Masada was destroyed in 74 AD. So we have almost time and place where we find this very unique stitch. It's really great for uh, us. We have an archaeological and biological pinpointing of where this shroud has been.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating, and these are some of the things that you can tell people when they come back with with this, because I I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I don't I haven't I'm not a hardcore shroud researcher, but I'm I am fascinated. I haven't read all the documentation, but I kind of follow it at least somewhat. And when I talk to people about it, usually very excitedly, if they've heard of the shroud at all, they often reply with something like, "Wasn't that proven fake?" And uh, you address these doubts uh, w- along with the pollen and uh, the weaving, the way it was uh, sewn together. There's some other information too that that uh, points to it not being fake, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. It's a, uh, There's no question with regard to the... When one looks at the shroud, you have to think of it as two events took place on this cloth, and one of them are the the blood marks that we see, and the other is the image that we see. Now, we know that, uh, and you, you'll you see from my book, The Shroud of Jesus, over and over again, uh, from the point of view of the blood marks, that these are indeed blood marks of a man who's been crucified. So from just from the forensics of that, I've done this for 45 years, and when I make a presentation, there's one thing that has never been asked of me the entire 45 years, and that is when I'm through with the, the just discussing the forensics of this, uh, the blood marks and so forth, nobody doubts at all that, this, that there was a crucified man under this cloth. It's, there's no question about it. Even the most ardent people who want to believe that it's a fake, they just sort of stand there with their mouth open. They just can't refute it because it's right there in front of them. So from the point of view of the, uh, so we have the blood marks. We know that the blood marks, we, We've the blood was already checked and tested. It is blood. by uh, Alan Adler, who I knew very well, he was a chemist and he was an expert in porphyrins, which is a breakdown of uh Team, the blood, you know, hemoglobin, and uh, he definitely found this on a cloth, whole blood, literally, proteins and, and so forth, serum proteins and whatever. And so that's what we have on there. We have uh, real blood. We have the blood of a man who's crucified. Uh, there's no question about that. Then we have the image, and we know that the image came second. The blood came first, the image came second because. Adler, when he did his studies, he had they did sticky tapes, and they put the sticky tapes onto the cloth. And, of course, some fibers came off as well. And the, uh, if you scraped away the blood from the fibers, you know, would not find any image areas underneath the fibers, on the fibers. So that means whatever caused the image, the blood protected the fibers, and no image was formed underneath the fibers. Therefore, the blood came first. Now, regarding the image itself, the image is well, we'll just have to think in terms of a thread. A thread uh, of the cloth is made up of many, many, many tiny fibers of of flax, and that they're cellulose. Uh, they're uh, very fine. they are way less than the diameters of the hairs on your head. way less, tiny. And uh, it is the yellowing of these fibers that is responsible uh, for the image, the yellowing. And uh, the yellowing is determined to be hydrative oxidation of the cellulose. And basically, that's a degradation of the uh, cellulose or the fiber. You have to i give you an example. If you're at your grandmother's and she has a tablecloth on, a small table somewhere, and there's a pot on there. And uh, if you lift the pot, it'll be white underneath and sort of yellowed around, and that's the degradation. And light heat and acid can cause dehydrative oxidation. So that would be, uh, you know, that's what this is, the degradation, and that's what causes the yellowness. Now, people uh, have tried to, It's first of all, this has been, We've known this of the shroud in a more scientific way since it was done. The first photograph of the shroud was taken, and that was another one, wonderful phenomenon. What you saw uh, on the cloth is with this very uh, sort of a you see it sort of a dim type image of a person.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And when Secunda Pia, who is an amateur photographer, a lawyer, and he took the first photograph in. 1898 of the shroud 125 years ago uh when he went into his dark room we had in the of course in those days these big glass plates they were negative plates and he and he was looking uh, at the, the negative as it was coming forth and here he saw this the a positive image of a man and it nearly shocked him he felt that that he was seeing the face of jesus for the first time so what he realized was that the original image on there is a negative and when you take a picture of it and, and you create a negative you turn in, it turns into a positive which it was a tremendous phenomena and people that that information traveled around the world at that time and scientists became very much interested in studying this cloth because of that that phenomenal alone is the question is who say photography was invented in the Uh, the 19th century, and here uh, we have a cloth that is is much older than that, and there we know that, you know, how did this happen? No one knows how it's happened. In fact, no one has been able to reproduce the shroud image at the microscopic level over these 125 years. Even with all the technology we have today, it hasn't been done. In
1: 1988, there was a carbon study that came out, and they declared it, it dated from medieval times. But this was very, very flawed, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, that was actually, when that first came out, I I accepted it because I'm a scientist, and it was a scientific study. I was about a, it happened about two weeks before. I made a presentation in front of an audience about 125 gentlemen who were uh, very, very physicians, dentists, uh, uh, lawyers, a uh, very uh, very, well-educated group, unusual group. And so I um, made a presentation and I said, gentlemen, I said, I've got a cloth here that's uh, medieval and uh, according to carbon dating, but I'm going to show you why uh, 30 to 50 men uh, who studied this cloth over the last 10 years believes that that is the shroud of Jesus. I made my presentations, and I said, "Well, now at the end, I said what we have here is an artistic form, uh, an artistic image, and that was done, and we don't know who the artist is or how he did it." And when I sort of finished that way, and everybody was very disappointed, they were they didn't believe me. They were asking questions about carbon dating, and don't you think it could have been this would have gone wrong, or that could have gone wrong, or they took the wrong samples and and so forth nobody believed that it was the forgery
3: hmm. of
2: the 14th century even though i was i was casting it like that
3: mm-hmm.
2: so i admitted to them i said it seems like two truths are banging against each other head to head and i said there's a buzz in my head and i said i agree with you I, something is wrong and i actually from there i drove to mit went to the library started looking up carbon dating and discovered one thing is that that's very important with carbon dating as far as contamination is concerned. And I'm not saying w- w- what the problems are for, from that perspective, but uh, when you do carbon dating, they tell you not to touch what you're going to carbon date and to use it and place it in tinfoil, et cetera. And we know the shroud has been held for 2000 years at the corners, literally at the corners where they did the carbon dating. And we don't have any, you know, any control studies about any of that that was done. And it'd be pretty hard to even do that. But the, the truth is that in 2019, the statistics of that study done in 1988, the f- full range of statistics were, were finally let out. And it was discovered that they were not homogeneous enough. And the conclusion was that you couldn't make a, a date. Uh, their Their date was not valid, and uh, you'd have to do this thing over again or if, if one wanted to do it over again mm-hmm. so it's not considered a valid date at this point by a lot of people and this study is a very good study. I give you another study that was done with regard- there's several studies that have been done with dating, but one of them I like very much and is very very interesting just came out in twenty twenty two I have that in my book as well. The shroud of Jesus, and that particular date. What they did there is they did a, a, a X-ray diffraction type of study. It was sort of a new way of examining age, where they could look at the cloth and the breakdown of it and whatever through X-ray diffraction. I don't know the technology of it. I can't. I don't want to explain something that I'm not really have that much knowledge of. But this is what they did, and they compared it to different cloths at different ages that they knew of specific ages, and they would compare the shroud to that. Actually, what they did, they got some cloth from Masada that I just talked to you about, which was 2,000 years old, definitely. They knew that, and they compared it with that, with the shroud, and they, they're virtually identical. Mm. So, therefore, you know, we have a real solid kind of dating method that tells us this is 2,000 years old as well. I'm not worried about carbon dating. Carbon dating sits alone by itself, and everything else is just a big pile up to the ceiling, and we have this carbon dating on the other table. Right. Uh, it's a red herring. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We can, in a sense, look at the shroud as a step-by-step documentation of the passion. Starting with the scourging at the pillar, what do the scourge wounds on the back of the shroud figure tell us?
2: I have to give full credit to Barbet, and I was fascinated by that as a young man reading about it. Barbet studied these scourge marks, and I, I remember reading his book about that, and I've looked at it, and I've showed this to many people over the years, is that what we find there, well, we have these marks that are like dumbbell in shape that would be consistent with what some people believe to be a first century Roman flagrum, whereby you would have Uh, two uh, pieces of bone or separated a little bit by a a leather strap and on the ends of the leather strap bone or lead. And There'd be two or three of those uh, used on a a wooden handle and and these leather straps and these uh, either bone or lead at the end. So just for picking out skin as one hits the body with force. And what you have on here, so you see that uh, and it's all over the back. You have some on the front. It's, it, it, the beating was incredible. In fact, I think you would have died just from the beating itself. Mm. In fact, it's interesting to note that uh, Jesus had difficulty as he was going to be crucified. and So he suffered tremendously, tremendously from this. And the other thing was the crowning of thorns that some people don't realize how Uh, the vascularity of the skull is tremendous. I remember somebody coming into the emergency room, uh, just a particular person that had, uh, he was covered with blood, covered, covered with blood, and uh, from a head injury, and I thought, oh my gosh, and sort of revealing that and and wiping away the blood, and it was just this little tiny, tiny cut. (laughs) (laughs) just you could hardly see it. That was just profusely bleeding. You can imagine if you have a number of these all over your head, how much bleeding you're going to have. So he had a lot of blood loss there. And with the scourging, you have a tremendous amount. You have some blood loss as well as injury to the skin. And what happens is fluid comes from the large vessels, and it just goes into the skin, and your blood pressure drops. You go into shock. So that counts for his weakness and his early death on the cross. He, at the end, likely went into congestive heart failure. And I have all that. That's all in the book. Detailed in, in every way. Basically, looking at this book, it's presented, for, it's a detective story, in a yeah. sense. Of yeah, a, a lifetime detective story, you might say, uh, that goes into the forensics of what's gone on, plus the history, a little, hardly any history, because what's important is really what you can see and what we've done there. We have about 80 photographs in the book, and the book is written so that what I say, you can see. Yes. And the person can make up their mind what it is themselves. That's the way. And the reason I I really came to realize that at some point, uh, it took me years, years, coming to realize that God created this so that uh, you didn't have to be a physician a chemist, a uh, uh, physicist uh, to understand the shroud. You had to be just somebody who's willing to use your mind and your eyes and take a look at this, and you can understand what's going on. And so those images are there for people to make up their own mind and come to their own conclusion about what the Shroud of Turin is. Because you can talk about all the fancy things of, well, how is this made, and whatever, we don't know how it was made. And you can go on and on about those things, but really, it's what you can see yourself in the book, the Shroud of Jesus, and come to your own conclusion. So that's why I wrote it. But it's a, it's like a detective story, and, and it is a detective story. It was a, like I said, a forty-five-year detective story. But that's where we finally come to the conclusion. Well, where we are now.
1: so as regards the crown of thorns you know often in artwork it's it's portrayed as this kind of little woven headband but he had wounds as far as you could tell the man on the shroud had wounds throughout his scalp
2: well you know there are there's definite evidence that it looks like it's throughout the scalp however there's there's that that sense of that it's a crown as well i mean It's one thing. I mean, it it really doesn't matter. He had a lot of puncture wounds all over that head. And uh, we can call it a crown or a cap of thorns. I just use crown of thorns, but it's certainly, I don't disagree with the fact you call it a cap of thorns. But uh, a lot of it's around the head as Mm -hmm. well. But what's important is that he was crowned or capped with thorns, and that's, uh, that's unique. We don't know historically of other people that have been crowned like that or capped like that and so that that shows so that points to jesus sure yeah yeah that's a little more
1: difficult to prove but you do show in your book that there's some possible evidence showing that he was carrying a cross as well
2: well it's true yes when you look at actually uh again i give barbay that credit uh you could see and uh, at least he thought i think he may have thought it was one side i think it's both sides what happens is when you look at the, uh, we can tell better today because with ultraviolet light, and that's how you can tell very well, it brings out the blood marks on the back. Uh, when you do a, a photographic picture with ultraviolet light, it, it darkens those wounds and you can see them much better. And what's happening is that there's broadening of those scourge marks at the both the upper back and left and right side uh, about like he was carrying something on his shoulder and it was uh, wearing down and and opening up those wounds uh, as opposed to the lower back and so forth so that yes you can see that
1: so next we get to the crucifixion how does the shroud image reflect the crucifixion story
2: well it does in in a number of ways Uh, Barbet came up with realizing looking at the wrist the blood mark on the wrist that the arm had to be about 60 degrees from the vertical in a crucified position because of the gravity pulling down on the blood and the blood was going into particular going down toward the earth. And so that tells us definitely that the man was in a crucified position. Then I came up with another piece that definitely without any doubt tells us that he was in a crucified position and that's a blood off with the left elbow. It depends on how you look at it. You look at it in the positive or the negative. It's left or right. But it's at the at the elbow. It's an off-image blood mark, and that particular blood mark tells us that his body was pushed to the right. The left foot is over the right, and so we did experiments with the, actually young men it was putting him in leather straps and so forth. And I suggested that we actually we use swivels on the wrists, and I suggest we use a swivel on the feet because I believe there was only one nail. And in doing so, we discovered that as somebody pushes themselves up, the left foot is over the right. It pushes them over to the right. And uh, therefore, the right arm becomes per- goes perpendicular from the cross down. In other words, you have a right angle at the elbow on the right side, and the other side is just straight-armed, uh, you know, pulling mm-hmm. away from the cross straight out. And we see this blood mark that comes around, that goes down the forearm and then around the elbow and then pools and drips down to the ground. And one would have to look at the photographs in the book to really envision this, but it's, it's classic. And I'll tell you one way to envision it. If you are washing your hands and you're saying, oh, uh, hand me a towel over there, and you have your hands up and you can feel that water going down your arm around your elbow, or if you're a guy shaving and you feel that water uh, coming down your hand and going down your, your arm and going around the elbow and then dripping to the ground, is classic position. And so that's for all of us. We all have experienced that. Mm-hmm. So people can, uh, when once you look at that, you can realize that this man, he was in a crucified position.
1: Can you speak about the wound that corresponds to the spear that was thrust into Jesus' side?
2: John's the only one that speaks about that, and it's a very important wound in that that wound, to let people understand from the point of view of Gospel of John, uh, that they found they were breaking the legs of the of the other two criminals, and Jesus, uh, when they came to Jesus, they found him dead, so they didn't break his legs, but the, the soldiers speared his side, and so in doing so, john testifies that he saw blood and water come from the side and so we noted that when we did this experiment i brought uh, bags of uh of of normal saline and and colored water to color it to the color red and and found that actually putting these tubes in the right position of the young men we would find that if they were in a particular position let's put it this way we were able to reproduce what we see on the shroud by the positions of uh, that they were in in the crucified position okay Mm -hmm. especially in the we had two positions for the men a man would be what i call in the position of agony and the position of of death uh the agony would be him you know trying to breathe push himself up so he could breathe because if you if your legs are broken for example that's why they break the legs because you die very rapidly, Ah. because you can't push yourself up.
1: Gotcha. And you
2: can't breathe, and your blood pressure drops, your tidal volume drops, everything drops, and the only way you can survive is by pushing yourself up with your legs. So if you break the legs, you die very rapidly, and that was the reason that they were breaking the legs. I have a physiological study, a little short study in, in the notes on that in my book, The Shroud of Jesus, if people who can understand it, if they want to get into that kind of detail. What it is, is that blood and water came out, and I talk about that in the in the text as well, and I'm not alone. Uh, a colleague of mine, a uh, physician who is also a pathologist, we both came to the same conclusion that Jesus died in congestive heart failure. And so what happens with that, if you came to the bedside with me, and somebody was intubated, and you put a tube down, a person was in failure, heart failure, uh, and the tube would suck the, t- the fluid out, it would look like water.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so what he, he had water in his lungs and so forth. And so when the spear went in, blood and water came out. And that water, when he was taken down from a crucified position to lying down, the wound, uh, evidently, had there was fluid in the chest in that water, and blood and water came out, and there's a whole area at the back of the man, of the loins of the back that you can see, and all all that information is in the book. It's amazing by the use of
1: models. This is some of the most fascinating stuff I found in your book. I really really enjoyed because you show you know you have the photographs of these models that you're using, and you were able to determine some things about the position of the man in the shroud when the image was made. And I'd, I'd never read this anywhere else.
2: It was an interesting story. John Jackson and I, he invited me down to do this because he knew of the work I did on blood and so forth. And somebody's asking him to find out how Jesus was, the position of the body, crucified. So I went down and we worked together. We were talking about the blood mark on off the left elbow at, Discussing the fact that he had, you know, I, when I mentioned, you know, left foot over the right, pushing the body over, and, you know, so that was the theory, uh, or let's say that was the hypothesis that we had, that I had, and then I shared that with John, and he agreed. We both agreed on that that's, that made sense. So John says, well, let's just put him up there and see what happens. And I said, that's right, let's do that. And so we put him up, and the gentleman up, yeah, you know, nice young man, at the beginning, he was sort of balancing himself. On the nail, you might call it the nail. All of a sudden, thud, ba boom. He falls into the position, the exact position that we had predicted, mm-hmm. the exact position. So I comment about this in the book, and I said, "Did you hear what we said? Did you hear what we were talking about?" In other words, were you try, Are you trying to do what? Are you trying to please us? With you know, because you overheard us. He's the poor guy. He says, oh, no, I, I can't help it. I'm, I, I can't, I." I, I fell in this position i can't do anything about it <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and we tested the hypothesis and we put the right foot over the left and he fell in the other direction so it's not a hypothesis anymore it's a fact mm-hmm. it's a, that's a, it's a fact that that's how if you're if you have one nail in your feet and one foot is on top of the other you're gonna you're gonna fall to the opposite side and so you know that's that's not confirmed that's i don't deal with hypotheses hypotheses, they got to be fact, and that's that's what I try to deal with, only fact.
1: Looking at the actual image of the figure on the shroud, by the way the shadows fell, by the way his hair fell, by the lack of compression on the buttocks, you've determined that this image was made while the figure was upright.
2: So that's a major point that we come to as we go through and go through the entire book, from the first half of the book, I should say, the forens- there's the forensic side of this book, and then there's a the scriptural side of this book, and they really go hand in hand, because you can't understand the shroud completely at all unless you have understanding of the Gospel of John. So they they work together. Mm-hmm. They, people talk about being factual, and well, I don't deal with with religion. I don't deal with. The Bible and all of that stuff. Well, I can tell you, if it wasn't for the Bible, nobody'd care about this shroud at all. It'd be just an interesting piece of somebody have blood on them, they were crucified or whatever, or maybe they were, maybe they weren't, whatever. Nobody pay much attention to it, but what's it's being paid a lot of attention is being paid because we have the story of Jesus and what happened. So that becomes that's what makes it important, and then what really makes it understandable. For what it's saying and what's going on here is are the gospel. But before we get into a little of that, the point of is this that when I was doing work on this cloth, I was I told you I was a skeptic, and my skepticism continued on, even though I uh, realized it was a crucified man, was this Jesus or not? And uh, people would say, well, this is the cru- this is the resurrection because we have this image that no one else can create, and it's probably created by light, and they have all kinds of hypotheses of how it was done. But that wasn't enough for me. I said, there's nothing on this cloth, even though that's all very exciting, that can convince me that this was the moment of the resurrection. And that's the way I felt, felt strongly about that. And then I was doing a study of the, of the man's face, blood and hair, that's a very interesting thing, very hard to discuss. Verbally, one has to look at the pictures in The Shroud of Jesus, my book, to understand that. But when doing that study with blood on the face and hair, whatever, where it came from, the origin of it, I had uh, my colleague, my volunteer, uh, he was um, uh, sitting at the, my dining room table, and I just took his picture, and I said, no, for this to be done properly, the man of the shroud, he's lying down for He's laid out in burial, so you have to lie down here and take your picture. And I took his photograph. So when I got the photographs back, and you know, I was in the days when you had positive and negative, you know, you got the you get your envelope from the from the drugstore, and you had a positive and a negative film, mm-hmm. which people aren't used to now. They just in digital, they don't even see the negative anymore.
3: Right. Right. But
2: uh, so I looked. at I was looking at the negative, and I was looking. I was wanted re- <clears throat> to see the negative and compare it with the negative of the face on the shroud, the cloth itself, to see if they match. I thought that maybe they somehow, maybe they would match. And when I looked at it, they didn't match at all. It was just a bland look because the the negative is all bland as opposed to the negative of the shroud where it had light areas around the eyes and nose and mouth and so forth. And so I said, Well, here, and I was still at that skeptical stage. I said, Here's where everybody says this is a negative when it's not. And I was very upset about it. And I started going through the rest of the negatives. And all of a sudden, I came across another negative, which was actually the very same volunteer. And it looked like the man of the shroud, the original, with light around the eyes, right under the nose, and at the lips. And I said, My gosh. This looks very much like the shroud, but this is the image that I took while he was upright at the dining room table. So therefore, the man of the shroud is not lying down, but it looks like he's upright. And that was an awesome moment. I mean, you might say an epiphany for me because I literally backed out of the room where the shroud was and thinking in terms of this is the moment of the resurrection, this man isn't lying down anymore in death. He's just not lying in burial. He's now been, this body is upright. So I got back to my senses and I said, well, is there anything else that shows that? And there was the same kind of thing at the chest, you know, shadows into the pectoral muscles between the fingers and the hand. And so then I said, is there anything else that's consistent with an upright man and lo and behold, it was in my face. Is that the hair of the of the man on the shroud flows down to his shoulders and right down his back, like he is upright. Mm-hmm. Now you have to re- remember, I'm a physician, so many times I'm in a room and I'm I'm laying somebody down on a table, and whether they have dirty hair, sticky hair, what it doesn't matter. What kind of hair? If it's long hair, it's going to fall back.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It all falls back. So. That's what we we don't have. That we have a man whose hair perfectly falls right down, and actually the back and front, which would it would be flattened out on the back if it were, it's not. It just mm-hmm. comes down just normally as a, a. And I have the photographs. They're all in the book. People can do the comparisons. They can see for themselves. It's not something I'm making up. No one has ever disputed what I'm talking about with regard to when I show these photographs because it's so obvious.
1: Yeah, as it's, an artist, I deal with light and shadow, obviously, and that was a huge impact on me when I saw your photos of that. It was like, oh yeah, like I I needed no more convincing. That guy was upright.
2: Yeah, that, it's just there. Mm-hmm. People have certain other hypotheses. There's other things people think that, from the point of view of image formation and all of that, that may disagree. Because they speak as of this or that, but this is a photograph, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that photograph shows what it is and. It's the, the photograph, the most powerful instrument we have in understanding the shroud. But anyway, to carry this on a little further, if you followed me into a morgue or a dissecting room or whatever, and I remember when I was just a young man dissecting in, in medical school, and I, I remember how almost shocked I was when I turned the body over of the, of the cadaver, and the, the buttocks is flat, and the back is flat, and you go to a morgue, you find the same thing the weight of the body uh, just pushes down on the on the flesh and mm-hmm. uh, even in in life as well as in is in death your body's flattened out and so that's not what we see and uh, you see the form of a person who is literally upright when you compare the flattened i have all that information again all with photographs that show the body is when you're lying down i have a man lying on glass and you see his body is flattened when he's upright it's not because mm-hmm. the, the body takes a, form, a different form uh, of, because of gravity. And, we have, and what we have in the man of the shroud is a man who has the form of an upright man, not of a man who's flattened out. And most people, when you go around the world, you find artists have, written, have seen Jesus, and they have him lying down, but they've paid a lot of attention to the front of the, of this, of the shroud. But God created a back of the shroud as well. And that back tells us for sure that he's not lying down yeah, yeah. he's upright yes yeah. so that was my epiphany thinking this indeed is the moment of the resurrection that's because we have an upright man but I didn't know what to do with that upright man to carry this on a little for another moment because he wasn't standing I thought if right. he's resurrected why isn't he standing you see And uh, he's not. He looks as if he's really lifted, still lifted up on a cross, basically, lifted up in midair. So I didn't know what to do with that information. So there was only one place I could look, and I decided to go to the Bible. So I read Mark, Luke, Matthew, found nothing, got to Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 32, and Jesus himself says, And I, when I am lifted up above the earth imagine and i when i am lifted up above the earth will draw all people to myself he was literally describing what i was looking at on the shroud mm. and so i didn't realize that the next statement is said well he's talking about his crucifixion but i went on to study this further and went to commentaries and people that really understand the gospel much better than i did of course. And it's understood because when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he draws people to himself, or when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, that that he is God. When you lift up, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Then if you believe, uh, you will have eternal life. Basically, each one of those things, he's really talking about his hour of glory when he is actually lifted up, not only in uh, crucifixion, but resurrection and ascension, and Raymond Brown, just the beginning of his, he's a a wonderful and well-known commentator. I don't know if he's wonderful, but he's a well-known commentator. He basically says at the end of his career that when he is lifted up in death and into heaven, that's when all people will come to him. Now, that's the culminating end of his career. It's the most important part of his, a big important part of his career, the career of Jesus. And that's what we see there on the Shroud. It's, he is lifted up. That means, from a biblical perspective, when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up in, in crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father. That's what, he's, that's what this means. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see here on the Shroud. Yeah, it's
1: stunning. And again, you have, you know, photographs of of these different models and, oh, yeah. and experiments throughout Solid. the book that really really make it clear as an artist, like I said it was very impactful for me because you know, dealing with light and shadow, I'm just like when when I saw that, I went, "Yeah, that's exactly right. He's upright." I mean, it's just very very apparent. In John, it mentions the shroud, but it doesn't mention the image,
2: correct? Right, and that's been a major contention or major problem for people because they say, well, after all, if it was so wonderful and so great, why don't we just take care of the situation and answer all these people by saying, oh, here's the shroud, and look at, he's upright, and he's, he's, you know, there it is. There's proof. I have physical proof, and so forth. Well, they don't unfortunately understand the times and the reality that John lived in when his countrymen, his own countrymen, uh, we, and you find this out specifically when you read Josephus, who is a historian that lived at the same time as John, that the, the Jewish people would rather die than have an image of a man in their, basically in their midst because that would be considered an object of idolatry and uh, what they would do with something like that, that they would destroy it and uh, or, and throw it into the Dead Sea. So there was no way that he could tell anybody about this image, because if he did, it would have definitely, they would have pursued that until they found it and destroyed it. And he knew that. So there was no way that he could write about it, blatantly say it outright. But through the book, as uh, I, and it's a little difficult to get into the details of that, But one can see, and that was one of the most exciting parts of reading the gospel, is that literally a discoverer that John is actually telling us about this in a specific way that this shroud of the upright man exists. And he's really leaving that story for people. In order to understand the gospel from that perspective, You have to go in and read it from the perspective of knowing that the man of the shroud is upright. And I got so motivated by this. I actually went to school for two years and took graduate courses in biblical studies, the Old Testament, New Testament, and then studied the Gospel of John for at least 10 years intensely to finally come to realize what you read about in the last six chapters of this book. And that, again, is also a detective story of uh, unraveling and seeing what's really going on. Yeah. Uh, That's where we are with that.
1: You do a wonderful job of sort of weaving together the Gospel of John with the scientific research throughout the book. I really, really like the way you did it. I really
2: just thought it was excellent. Well, thank you, thank you. I think what we really have here is we have a cloth. We have, first of all, something that no one can reproduce and we have something that with the upright man, you can't even start to figure out how this was made. A lot of people want to figure out how it was made. And I love all the guys that are trying to make, figure out how it's made. And I'm with them and, and, you know, I'm happy to, to listen in to what it is. But I don't think that's ever going to happen because the, the making of this is like uh, the changing of water to wine if you know where I'm going. How do you do that, you know? Right. Uh, how do you raise Lazarus, you know? Lazarus, uh, we worry about somebody in medicine if they're, they don't have oxygen for four minutes. This man didn't have oxygen for four days.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Who put that brain back together again? Right. We have events in Jesus' life that are beyond our ordinary understanding of time and space, and that's what we have here. We have a living miracle that is a, one of the most important miracles and signs. You see, this is a sign. All the miracles, we, what we call miracles, John calls signs. Mm-hmm. And Jesus calls them works. They're works of God. And why does he do these works? He does these works so that we understand that he comes from the Father and that the Father is in him and he's in the Father. In other words, he's the walking temple. Of, of God, you know, the Father, Son, yeah. and Holy Spirit. He, that's who he is. And that's why he does these, and he, he makes it very clear. Again, you read the Shroud of Jesus, and you'll start to see why he does it. He says he does it. I, I approach the Gospels in the same way as I approach forensics. I don't comment. I just say, Jesus said this, or John said this. It's there, mm-hmm. and you can see it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you can read it, and it's specific. I don't comment. I'm not a theologian. I'm not in a position, but the theologians have looked at the book, and Scott Hahn is one of them, uh, who is a well-known theologian. He recommends the book, and he finds no problem with what I'm saying. He says he never overreaches. That's very important. Mm-hmm. So basically, what we have there is what has actually been said, and the bottom line is this, that God is actually communicating to us that the crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son are real events. They're realities. And what he's communicating also is that, and we, you have to read the book to get into these details because it's too much. We can't go into all of this. But that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the bread of life. The real bottom line is that God is real and spiritual life is real. And you can see it for yourself. Yeah, That's where we're going with this book. And yeah. not by my saying it, but by your seeing it yourself. That's the that's the big thing here. Yeah. That's where the direction the book is going. If there's people out there that, that have faith, they want to deepen their faith, this is a, certainly a way to do it. And if people are seeking God this book is a way to do it objectively. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Well, before I let you, I just have one little fun question. I think I know your answer to this, but I just want to get it anyway. If you had to give a percentage as to the possibility of the shroud being some kind of forgery or fake, could you put a number on that? Yeah, it's
2: 100% real.
1: Yeah, yeah, I figured that's my feeling as well. I I've, I've had some people push, but even, you know, other Catholics, other believers kind of push back on me a little bit, and I just said, "Well, I just can't I can't see how it was done." Otherwise, I mean, in, until we get more information, it just there's so much there. There's so much there.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's there. I talked to many prisoners over the years and uh God bless them. I mean, I learned a lot from my prisoners. Uh they're just wonderful people, and I'd say to them, Again, all you need are your eyes and your mind to see that God is communicating to you. And they saw it. It's great. And that's what the pictures are there for, to come and make your own decision of what this is about. Well, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. its It's been a great run, and uh, I want to thank you so much for inviting me and having me uh, participate with you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's Dr. Gilbert Lavoie. The book is The Shroud of Jesus and the Sign John Ingeniously Concealed. It's available from Sophia Institute Press right now. Thank you once again.
2: Bless all your listeners. It's just wonderful having been with you. All right.
1: Thank you so much. Once again, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie's book is The Shroud of Jesus and the Sign John Ingeniously Concealed. It's published by Sophia Institute Press, and it's available wherever you get your books. Just a reminder about our Etsy shop. The links are in the show notes. Our shop name is Lost Grave. We have the Petals and Thorns zine of Catholic Ephemera in there. We've got our Mary bandanas paracord rosaries i'm about to add seven sorrows paracord rosaries as well and some new paracord rosaries which include antique crucifixes those items probably won't get into the shop until november but i'll see what my time is like this week see if i can get them completed again the shop name is lost grave at etsy etsy.com slash shop slash lost grave look for the flowered past section in the shop for all the Flowered Path related stuff. Thanks to everybody who has supported our efforts through the Etsy shop as well. That's another way to support the Flowered Path. Another way to help that doesn't cost a thing is to like and subscribe wherever you're listening. If you're inclined to leave a nice review, that would help as well. If you can subscribe to the Flowered Path YouTube channel, that's another way to help. Even if you don't listen to podcasts on YouTube, that'll still help us over there. And of course, if you can share our episodes with your friends and on social media, that will help as well. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll be back soon with more.